Section 13 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 12, Part 1. Mary Beatrice returned to Saint-Germain in time to attend the deathbed of her old friend, Louis the Fourteenth, and to use her influence with him once more in behalf of her son. The dying monarch exerted himself to write with his own hand to his grandson, the King of Spain, urging him to render all the assistance he could to his adopted son, as he called the Chevalier de Saint-George, to aid in establishing him on the British throne. Louis had himself actually entered into serious engagements with Queen Mary Beatrice to furnish arms for 10,000 men and ships to transport them to Scotland. He had issued his commands for the preparation of the armament, and it was in a state of forwardness at the time when his death frustrated all the dispositions he had made in favor of the expected rising in the north of England. He gave, says the Duke of Berwick, all the orders that were necessary, and then calmly awaited his last hour. He had told the Queen of England several times that he was not ignorant, that at his advanced age he must soon expect to die, and thus he prepared himself for it, day by day, that he might not be taken by surprise. They had a very different opinion of him in the world, for there they imagined that he would not suffer anyone to speak to him of death. I know to a certainty that what I have stated is true, having had it from the mouth of the queen herself, a princess of strict veracity. Louis the Fourteenth breathed his last, September 1st, 1715. Mary Beatrice, who was greatly afflicted, not only for the loss of her old friend, but on account of the damp that event was sure to cast on the hopes of the Jacobite cause at that painfully exciting crisis of the fortunes of her son, withdrew to Chalot to indulge her grief. In the dispute which took place, touching the guardianship of the infant king, his successor, the exiled queen was appealed to by the Duke of Maine and his party, as a person more in the confidence of the deceased monarch than any one. Her majesty deposed in the presence of the Duke and Duchess de Lazune what had been said to her by Louis the Fourteenth on the subject of his testamentary dispositions, on which, the Duke of Orléans, who had possessed himself of the power, observed with some point that a testament could be of little value when the tester doubted whether it would ever be carried into effect. It was unfortunate for Mary Beatrice that by a sort of negative implication with the rival faction patronized by Madame de Maintenon, she incurred the ill will of the regent Orléans and furnished him with an excuse for repudiating the cause of her son. The death of Louis the Fourteenth had produced an entire change in the aspect and interests of the French court. Madame de Maintenon found herself, in her present adversity, as carefully shunned by the minions of fortune as she had recently been courted and caressed. The fallen Queen of England was of a different spirit from the time-serving flatterers who feared to offend the prince, into whose hands the power of the French crown had fallen, by appearing to show the slightest marks of respect to his adversary. Not so wise in her generation as the children of this world, and acting in the kind sincerity of an honest heart, Mary Beatrice treated her afflicted friend with the tender sympathy and attention that were due to the relict of the deceased sovereign. Their first meeting was by mutual appointment at Shiloh. 
Madame de Maintenon was dressed in the deepest mourning, and looked ill and dejected. As soon as the queen saw her, she extended her arms towards her, and when they drew near each other, tenderly embraced her. Both burst into tears. Their communications were long and affectionate. Mary Beatrice recurred frequently to the memory of her departed lord, King James, but with that holy sorrow which time and religion had softened and subdued. With her there was a joy in her grief, and whenever Madame de Maintenon related any instance of piety shown by Louis on his deathbed, her majesty was sure to rejoin, That was like my sainted king, even he could not have done better. Madame de Maintenon repeated this observation afterwards to the sisters of Chalot, and said it had given her much comfort. Mary Beatrice returned the same evening to Saint-Germain. When she was ready to leave her chamber, after she had taken an affectionate farewell of Madame de Maintenon, she asked for the abbess of Chalot, who, with a train of the oldest sisters, attended her majesty to the gate. She spoke warmly in praise of Madame de Maintenon, and the admirable frame of mind in which she appeared. The abbess replied, that her majesty's example had been very proper to animate that lady. The queen raised her eyes to heaven with a look that sufficiently indicated the humility of her heart, and entering the chapel, she knelt down for a few moments in the act of silent adoration, with an air of such perfect self-abasement that all present were deeply touched. She took the arm of the abbess as they left the chapel, and talked much of Madame de Maintenon and what she had been saying of Louis the Fourteenth, repeating, that it reminded her of her own sainted monarch. She bade the abbess a very gracious farewell, and requested her prayers for her son, and then, turning to the nuns, entreated that they would also pray for him. Mary Beatrice returned to Saint-Germain to hold her anxious counsels with Berwick, and her son's new secretary of state, Lord Bolingbroke, as to the means of obtaining the necessary supplies for the Jacobite rising in Scotland. Bolingbroke's frequent solicitations for that purpose to the regent Orlan only served to expose the designs of the friends of the cause and to put the British government on the alert. The arms and stores that had been secretly provided by the friendship of the deceased king, Louis the Fourteenth were on board twelve ships lying at Havre. But just as they were ready to sail, Sir George Byng came into the roads with a squadron and prevented them from coming out of harbor, and Lord Stair, the British ambassador, demanded of the regent that they should be given up, as they were intended for the service of the pretender. The regent, instead of doing this, ordered the ships to be unloaded, and the arms and ammunition to be carried to the King of France's arsenal. This was one of the leading causes of the failure of the enterprise, since the bravest champions can do little without weapons. The rebellion in Scotland broke out prematurely, hurried on by the ardor of misjudging partisans. Its details belong to our national annals. All we have to do with it is to trace its effects on the personal history of the royal mother of the representative of the fated line of Stuart. Bolingbroke, in his letter to that prince of September 21st, after informing him that Her Majesty's almoner, Mr. Innes, and Captain O'Flanagan, had been consulting about providing a vessel to convey him to the scene of action, says, 
The queen orders Mr. Innes to furnish money to O'Flanagan, and by that means he will guess at the service intended, as well as what was said to him before my return. But I shall say nothing to him, nor anyone else of the measure taken, because I know no better maxim in all business than that of trusting no creature with the least circumstance beyond what is absolutely necessary he should know, in order to enable him to execute his part of the service. An excellent maxim, doubtless, but the object of the new minister was evidently to alienate the confidence of his master from the queen and her counsellors, and more than that, to estrange him from the only person capable of giving good advice, the Duke of Berwick, and that he had succeeded in creating a coolness may be perceived even from the manner in which he speaks of the Duke. The Duke of Berwick is gone to Saint-Germain, so that I shall have no opportunity of making either a secret or a confidence of this to him. I add no more as to his grace, though I should have something to say, because the Queen tells me she has writ to your Majesty her opinion, in which I most humbly concur. The self-importance of the new Secretary of State was piqued at finding Mary Beatrice confided implicitly in Berwick, and only partially in himself, and that, instead of having to communicate intelligence to her, she communicated it to him. He intended to be the head of the Stuart cause, and he found himself only employed as the hand. The Queen and Berwick transacted all the secret important correspondence and negotiations together, and then employed him, not as a minister of state, but as an official secretary. Berwick had been empowered by Her Majesty to press the King of Sweden for performance of his promise of landing 8,000 troops in Scotland to assist her son. But Charles was himself in great difficulties, being closely besieged at Stralsund at the very time his aid was solicited, and could only express his regret at being unable to accord the needful succors. The King of Spain revoked his promise of a pecuniary loan at the same time, and both these inauspicious circumstances being communicated by Mary Beatrice to Bolingbroke, he thus briefly announces the twofold disappointment to the luckless Chevalier de St. George. I enclose to your majesty, continues Bolingbroke, two letters from Stralsen, with great reluctance, since you will find by them that all our hopes of troops are vanished. I receive them from the queen, whose packet accompanies this, and who intends to send your majesty's servants down to you. The chevalier replied, that his affairs had a melancholy aspect, but that so far from discouraging him, it confirmed him in his determination to set out at once, since matters only became worse by delay, and that he ought to have been on the spot six months before. It was necessary for him to come to Paris, or its environs, in order to hold a private council with his mother and friends, previous to his embarkation from one of the ports on the coast of Bretagne. Some political overtures were made at this time, in the vain hope of propitiating the regent, for a marriage between his unmarried daughter, Mademoiselle de Valois, and the Chevalier de St. George. How far the Queen was concerned in promoting this project does not appear. It certainly was not pushed, with any degree of earnestness, on the part of the Prince, who apprehended that it would be injurious to his popularity with his party in England. It has been said that the young lady herself, being greatly in love with the royal knight-errant, who at that period excited a very romantic interest in France, besought her father to make her his wife, to which the cautious regent replied, 
Nous verrons, ma fille, nous verrons. Meantime, the standard of the Chevalier had been raised in Scotland, and a formidable insurrection, headed by Lord Derwentwater and Mr. Forster, took place in Northumberland. On the second Sunday in October, the Protestant clergymen, who acted as chaplains to the rebel muster, prayed for the son of James II by the style and title of King James, and for Mary Beatrice by the designation of Mary Queen Mother. The same was done at Kelso, where a mixed congregation of Protestants and Roman Catholics met in the Great Kirk to listen to a political sermon preached by the Reverend Mr. Patton on the text, The Blessing of the Firstborn is His. The gentlemen of the latter persuasion told the preacher that they approved very well of our liturgy, which they had never heard before. On the 28th of October, the Chevalier left Bar. Information was immediately given to the British ambassador, Lord Stair, who went to the regent Orlan and demanded, in the name of his sovereign George I, that orders should be issued to prevent his passage through France. The regent, according to the Duke of Berwick's statement, replied, If you can point out to a certainty the precise place where he may be found, I will have him reconducted to Lorraine, but I am not obliged to be either spy or jailer for King George. Some days afterwards, Lord Stair assured the regent that the pretender would arrive on such a day, which he named at Chalon in Champagne. Prudence, says Lamonti, prescribed to the regent a conduct oblique enough to satisfy George I without discouraging the Jacobites, but the events precipitated themselves, as it were, with a rapidity, which rendered it difficult to preserve a course sufficiently gliding. He summoned Contandes, the major of the guards, into his presence, and there, before Lord Stair, gave positive orders to him to intercept the prince on the road and conduct him back to Lorraine. But aware of the unpopularity in which such a proceeding would involve him, he secretly instructed Contades not to find the person of whom he went in quest. Berwick adds, that the Chevalier, being warned of the intended arrest, kept out of the danger by taking a circuitous route. Contades, on his return, gave a flourishing account to Stair of all he had done during an absence of several days, and His Excellency affected to be satisfied, yet he shrewdly suspected that the regent had no particular desire to hinder the passage of the Chevalier, and Contades no great relish for the commission that had been imposed on him. Stair had also sent out his myrmidons out in all directions to try to discover the road the prince was taking, but he was so well disguised and traveled with so few companions that he never heard of him till it was too late to be of any use. No one was more uncertain of the movements of her son than the queen, for he dared not write to her, lest his letters should be intercepted. He had withal too much reason to suspect that she could not keep a secret, and that there were traitors at Saint-Germain, and spies within the hallowed pale of her favorite retreat at Chalot. The feelings of the anxious mother, though they had never been unveiled to public view, may be imagined, after her only son, her last surviving child, had left a place of security, and set forth to join a desperate enterprise, with a bill of attainder hanging over him, and the price of blood on his head, when a fortnight had elapsed since she had heard tidings of him. 
twelve precious inedited letters from the queen's faithful lady-in-waiting lady sophia buckley who generally performed the office of private secretary to her royal mistress when unable to write herself to her friends at chalot afford much interesting information connected with the personal history of mary beatrice at this period they are addressed to the abbess and ex-abbess la mere de posse of chalot written in very bad but perfectly intelligible french though illiterately spelled lady sophia though a scotchwoman and a steward of blantyre by birth had during her seven-and-twenty years exile with her royal mistress nearly forgotten her mother tongue and writes perth parte and sterling sterl there is however a warmth of feeling an affectionate simplicity in her style that are worth all the meretricious graces and elegantly turned periods of the classic bolingbroke the first letter of this valuable series of domestic documents is dated merely this thirteenth of november the date preceded by st andrew's cross the distinctive mark of this lady's correspondence from which our limits will only permit us to select such extracts as relate to the queen lady sophia commences her first letter to the ex-abbess written she says by the desire of the queen with inquiries after the health of the sisters of chalot and then proceeds god be thanked that of the queen is good though she looks ill enough which is not wonderful considering the painful inquietude she suffers and must continue to do till the king her son be established her majesty commands me to inform you of what you have probably heard some time ago which is that the king my master has left lorraine but this is all she can tell you at present except that his affairs go on prosperously in scotland and that we reckon that the earl of mar has at perth twenty thousand men well disciplined and firmly united for the good cause and that the duke of argyle has not more than three thousand men in his camp moreover in the north of england four provinces that is counties have declared for the good cause and the scotch that is to say a considerable portion of the army of the earl of mar are going if possible to join our friends in the north but as argyle is encamped at stirling and guards the passage of the river and the bridges where he is strongly entrenched it is difficult to force it nevertheless they hope soon to pass into england such was the exaggerated account of the state of her son's affairs in scotland which flattered the maternal hopes of the widowed consort of james the second while she was at the same time tortured with suspense and uncertainty on his account not knowing what had become of him whether he was in france scotland or england living or dead at this momentous crisis of his fortunes the earl of mar had written to her on the twelfth of october giving her a statement of the proceedings of the insurgents and earnestly demanding the presence of him they styled their king lady sophia buckley concludes her letter to the abbess of chalot in these words the queen begs you my dear mother and all the community to redouble if it be possible your holy prayers for the preservation of the person of the king and for the success of this great enterprise and for the preservation of his faithful subjects her majesty ordered me to write yesterday but we waited till this evening having a hope that the letters from england which ought to come to-day might furnish some fresh news but as the post is delayed her majesty would not longer defer inquiring what tidings you have 
and communicating hers to you. For myself, permit me, my dearest mother, to assure you that no one can esteem and honor you more entirely than your very obedient servant, S. Buckley. I hope that Miss Plowden and her lady mother are both well. Have the goodness, my beloved mother, to tell my dear Catherine Angelique that the queen is very sorry she has not time to answer her letter, but she must not allow that to discourage her from writing, as her majesty is very glad to receive letters from her. Endorsed. To the very Reverend Mère de Posse, de Mouflet, of the ladies of Saint-Marie de Chalot, at Chalot. Almost immediately after the date of this letter, the queen received an intimation of the movements of her son, who, dodged by the spies of the British embassy, had been playing at hide-and-seek for many days, without venturing to approach the coast, though his friend, Lord Walsh, lay at Nantes, with a light-armed, swift-sailing vessel, ready to convey him down the lorry. The Chevalier de St. George and his friend, William Erskine, earl to the brother of Buchan, wandering about in disguise, observed that portraits and descriptions of his person were set up in some of the post-houses to facilitate his apprehension. Another of his attendants, Colonel Hay, falling in with a party that were lying in wait to seize the royal adventurer, very narrowly escaped being assassinated, in mistake for him, as he was traveling in one of his post-carriages. All of a sudden, the chevalier determined to come to Paris to attend a general council of his friends, both French and English, that was to be held at the Hotel de Brutel, the house of the Baron de Brutel at de Prully, a nobleman of great wealth and of distinguished family, who had married the beautiful daughter of Lord and Lady O'Brien Clare, who had accompanied Queen Mary Beatrice on her voyage to France, when she fled with her infant son in 1688. Lady Clare was the state housekeeper at Saint-Germain, and one of the ladies of the bedchamber to the Queen. The Hotel de Brutel was the resort of all that was gay, gallant, and spirituel in Paris. It was also, of course, a general rendezvous for the friends of the House of Stuart. It was in the salons of the Marquise de Châtelet, the sister of the Baron de Brutel, they held their conferences. When the Queen was informed that her son meant to take Paris in his route, she came to Shiloh to avail herself of the opportunity of making all necessary arrangements with him and bidding him a personal farewell. The following interesting particulars are recorded in the autobiography of one of the nieces of the Baron de Brutel. The Chevalier de St. George came very privately to Paris in the dress of an abbe, with only one or two companions. He went directly to the Hotel de Brutel, where he met all his friends and confederates. It should seem, the young ladies of the family had the honor of being presented to him, which made a great impression on Madame de Crequy, then Mademoiselle de Fowlet, a girl in her teens, who continues. He was at that time a very handsome and accomplished prince, and did not appear more than five or six and twenty years of age. We had the honor of making our courtesies to him, and he addressed some complimentary words to us, after which he withdrew with his followers into my uncle's cabinet, where they remained in conference great part of the night. At the dawn of day, he departed for Shiloh, where the queen, his mother, who had come to meet him, was waiting for him at the convent of the visitation. He slept in a little house, which the Duke de Lauzun had, no one knew why, retained for his own use in that village. He remained there four and twenty hours. 
Mary Beatrice felt this parting with her son on an expedition so full of peril, a severe trial. He was dearer to her than ever, the last tie that bound her to the world of care and sorrow. But she suspected not that the only serious danger he was to encounter would be within a few hours after he had bidden her adieu. The Hotel de Bretel was a marked place, and everything that passed there was watched with jealous attention by the spies of Lord Stair. There was, besides, an unsuspected traitoress within the domestic circle. Mademoiselle Emily de Châtelet was so greatly piqued at the preference evinced by one of the prince's gentlemen-in-waiting, Lord Keith, for her cousin, Mademoiselle de Froulet, that she did all she could to injure the Jacobite cause out of revenge. Secret information of whatever designs came to her knowledge was communicated by her immediately to the Earl of Stair. It was, therefore, in all probability, through the ill offices of this inimical member of the family circle at the Hotel de Brutel, that the intelligence of the Chevalier de St. George's visit was conveyed to the British Embassy, together with the information that he was to set out the following day for Chateau Terry, on his way to the coast of Bretagne, and that he would change horses at Nonincourt. If we may believe the following statement of Madame de Crequy, which is corroborated by Le Monte, Duclos, Saint-Simon, and several other contemporary French writers, Lord Stair, misdoubting the regent Orlan, instead of claiming his promise of arresting the unfortunate prince, determined to take surer measures on his own account by sending people in his own employ to waylay him. Be this as it may, it is certain that the prince, after he had taken leave of the queen, his mother, started from Chalot in one of the post-carriages of the Baron de Bretel, attended by some horsemen who had put on the livery of that noble French family. At the entrance of the village of Nonancourt, which is not more than twenty leagues from Paris, a woman begged the postilions to stop, and stepping quickly on the boot of the carriage, she addressed the feigned abbe in these words. If you are the king of England, go not to the post-house, or you are lost, for several villains are waiting there to murder you. Rather a startling announcement for a man on whose head the tremendous bribe of 100,000 pounds had been set by the British government. Without betraying any discomposure, he asked the woman who she was and how she came by her information. She replied, My name is La Hopetel. I am a lone woman, the mistress of the post-house of Nonincourt, which I warn you not to approach, for I have overheard three Englishmen, who are still drinking there, discussing with some desperate characters in this neighborhood, a design of setting upon a traveler, who was to change horses with me tonight, on his way to Chateau Thierry, where you are expected, on your road to England. She added, that she had taken care to intoxicate the ruffians, and having locked the door upon them, had stolen out to warn him of his danger, beseeching him at the same time to confide implicitly in her good intentions, and allow her to conduct him to the house of the curé, where he would be safe. There was something so simple and earnest in this woman's manner, that stranger as she was to him, the royal adventurer resigned himself to her guidance, with that frank reliance on the generous impulses of the female character, which no one of his race had ever caused to rue. She led him and his attendants safely to the house of the village pastor, then ran to summon Monsieur Dargenson, the nearest magistrate, who came properly supported, and took three persons into custody at the post-house. Two of them were Englishmen, and produced Lord Stair's passports. 
the other was a French baron, well known as a spy in the employ of that minister. The leader of the party was Colonel Douglas, son of Sir William Douglas, an attaché to the embassy, who assumed a high tone and said, that he and his companions were in the service of the British ambassador. The magistrate coolly observed that, no ambassador would avow such actions as that in which he was engaged, and committed them all to prison. Meantime, the worthy La Hope Patel dispatched one of her couriers to the Marquis de Torcy with a statement of what had occurred, and took care to send the chevalier forward on his journey in another dress, and in one of her own voitures, with a fresh relay of horses, with which he reached Nantes, and finding the vessel in waiting for him, descended the lorry, and safely arrived at St. Mallow's. Mary Beatrice wrote with her own hand, to Mademoiselle Le Hopital, a letter full of thanks for the preservation of her son, but that which charmed the good woman most, was the acknowledgments she received from the regent, who sent her his portrait, as a testimonial of his approbation of her conduct on this occasion. Reasons of state compelled the regent, to stifle the noise made by this adventure, and he prevented the depositions of the postmistress of Court and her servants from being published. Lady Sophia Buckley gives the superior of Chalot the following confidential account of the state of mind in which her royal mistress and herself remained, during a second interval of suspense that intervened before tidings of the chevalier's proceedings reached the anxious little court at Saint-Germain. This 28th of November as the queen intends to write to you, my dear mother, I shall not say much, except to let you know that, through the mercy of God, the queen is well, and received yesterday news from Scotland and the north of England, but still her majesty can hear no tidings of the king, her son. Her majesty doubts not of the fervor and zeal of your prayers to the Lord for his preservation. The lively and firm faith of the queen supports her, which makes me every moment reproach myself for being so frequently transported with fears for the safety of the king. I take shame to myself when I see how tranquil the hope she has in divine providence renders the queen. But I pray you not to notice this in your reply, for I put on the courageous before her majesty. Under the impression that her son had embarked at St. Malo, Mary Beatrice enclosed the packet of letters for him to the Earl of Mar in Scotland, to whom she also wrote. But the Chevalier, though he went on board ship, waited several days for a favorable wind, and finally learning that the forces of George I occupied Dunstaffnage, where he intended to land, and that there was a squadron on the lookout for him, came on shore again, and traveled privately on horseback to Dunkirk, where he embarked on board a small vessel of eight guns, attended by six gentlemen only, who were disguised like himself in the dress of French naval officers. He was seven days in performing the voyage, and it was long ere the news of his safe landing reached the court of Saint-Germain. On the 5th of December, Lady Sophia Buckley writes by the desire of her royal mistress to the superior of Chalot to inquire after the health of the community, and to tell them the floating rumors that had reached her from the scene of action. Her Majesty, she says, continues well, but as you may truly suppose, very restless till she can receive sure intelligence of the arrival of the king, her son, in Scotland, there are reports, but we imagine without foundation, that the faithful friends of the king have been defeated in England, and on the other hand, they say that the Earl of Mar has beaten our enemies in Scotland, but that wants confirming. 
However, there are many letters which corroborate the latter rumor, yet we dare not flatter ourselves at present, for if it be really so, there will surely arrive between this and tomorrow morning the verification, which the queen will not fail to communicate to the dear sister Catherine Angelique, as she intends to write to her. Therefore, it will not be necessary for me to inflict on you the trouble of reading a longer letter of my scrawling. Griffinage is the word. It is certainly graphically descriptive of the queer calligraphy of the noble amanuensis, to say nothing of her misapplication of capitals to adjectives and adverbs, and small letters for names of places, but her unaffected sympathy for the royal mistress, whose exile and adversity she shared for seven and twenty years, makes every word from her pen precious. She adds two postscripts to this letter, the first, to tell the abbess that the Duc de Lauzun had just arrived at Saint-Germain, but was not likely to remain more than twenty-four hours. The second, which is dated five o'clock in the evening, shows that he was the bearer of heavy tidings, which Lady Sophia thus briefly intimates. The bad news from the north of England having been confirmed, and that from Scotland, none too good, the queen orders me to tell you, my dearest mother, that she cannot write, and I am to tell you that she doubts not that you will redouble your prayers for the preservation of the person of the king, her son, for the prosperity and consolation of his faithful subjects. The disastrous intelligence which Lazun had come to Saint-Germain to break to Mary Beatrice was no less than the death-blow of her son's cause in England, in consequence of the cowardly or treacherous conduct of Mr. Forster at Preston, and the defeat and surrender of the rebel army there on the 13th of November, together with the loss of the battle of Sheriff Muir in Scotland on the same day. The queen and her faithful ladies spent their melancholy Christmas at Saint-Germain, in painful uncertainty of what had become of the Chevalier de St. George. Lady Sophia Buckley writes again to the superior of Chalot on the 29th of December, telling her, that the queen continues well, and had been able to attend for nine successive days, the services of the church for that holy season, which, continues Lady Sophia, have been very consolatory to her majesty, who only breathes for devotion. Her ladyship goes on to communicate the messages of her royal mistress to her cloister friends in these words. The queen commands me to tell you, that as soon as she receives any good news, she will not fail to impart it, she says, you are not to give credit to the report, which she understands you have heard, that the Scotch wish to make peace with the Duke of Hanover, for it is not true, although their affairs are not in so good a condition as they were. The season is so inclement there, that they cannot do anything on either side. God has his seasons for all things, and we must submit to his holy will, and not cease to hope in his mercy, since our cause is just." The manner in which Lady Sophia speaks of her royal mistress is very interesting. Although you know the great virtue of the queen, my dear mother, you would be surprised to see with what firmness her majesty supports all the trying events that have come upon her since she has been at Saint-Germain. Return thanks to God, my dear mother, for all the grace he has given the queen, and request of him a continuation of it for her and her preservation, who is so dear to us. This unaffected tribute of affection and esteem from one of the noble British matrons of her bedchamber, who had lost everything for her sake, 
surely affords a presumptive evidence of the moral worth of the consort of James II. It is a common saying that no man is a hero to his valet de chambre, but this proverb appears reversed with regard to our unfortunate queen, for the more we search into the records that have been borne of her by her personal attendance, and all those who enjoyed the opportunity of observing her conduct in her most unreserved hours of privacy, the writer does the picture grow. Be it also noted that no one who knew her intimately has ever spoken ill of her, although she was not, of course, free from the faults and errors of judgment inherent in human nature. It will be said that those who have commended Mary Beatrice were partial witnesses, being her servants and personal friends, nor can this be denied, seeing that they gave proofs of attachment not often to be met with among courtiers. Partial they were, for they preferred her in her poverty, exile, and adversity to her powerful and prosperous rivals, the regnant queens, Mary and Anne. They preferred her service to their own interests and were contented to be poor expatriated outlaws for her sake, and being thus faithful in deeds, is it likely that they would be unfaithful in their words, or less worthy of credit than the unscrupulous writers who performed an acceptable service to her powerful enemies by calumniating her. End of section 13